Hi, welcome to 10 CDs for a Penny, the show where we talk about mild music mags and culture and stuff. I'm Jackson Maine. This episode, we're focusing on Chart Magazine, July 1996, and a cover story on the band Sloan. If you don't know who Sloan is, shame on you. Stop listening to me right now and go listen to Sloan. Sloan are one of my favorite bands of all time, certainly one of the greatest Canadian bands of all time. They've been voted by multiple Canadian publications as having the greatest Canadian albums in the history of Canadian music. Their music is timeless, it's wonderful, and it's the 25th anniversary of one of Sloan's landmark records, Navy Blues. That's why I wanted to do a Sloan episode, but even bigger deal, Jay Ferguson, guitarist of Sloan, agreed to do an interview with me. I wanted to talk to him all about the Navy Blues era, but we started way before that. We started with the signing of Sloan to DGC Records and moved our way up into Navy Blues. I think Sloan is one of the most fascinating bands ever. They got signed to DGC Records, which if you don't know the history of DGC Records right now, all I have to say is Nirvana was on DGC Records. They got signed in 1992 to DGC Records and have had a 30-year career since. All original members, which let's be honest, bands usually have a shelf life and Sloan is still going. So I have an incredible interview with Jay. He was an open book about their career. He answered all the questions that I always wanted to ask about Sloan since I was a teenager. Noy and Helmy, Alex Rishko, and I, we start off this episode talking about Sloan and our love for Sloan. So there's that. But if you don't want to listen to us and you just want to skip to where Jay talks, which is, which let's be honest, is probably what you really want to hear most of all. You can go to the 25 minute mark and just listen to Jay talk about the career of Sloan and a whole bunch of interesting small little stories you may have never heard of. So let's not waste any more time here. Let's talk about Sloan. Okay, welcome back to the pod. This episode, we're focusing on July 6th or July 1996 Chart Magazine. Anybody who doesn't know Chart, that was a Canadian indie rock, indie music magazine uh, that went right into the 2000s. It was pretty important in Canada. We've got a cover story on Sloan. Sloan uh, has the, it's a 25th anniversary of Navy Blues this year. This is what I'd like to kind of mention and talk about, but... Obviously, I only had a 1996 issue, and Navy Blues came out in 1998, but we're just going to talk about everything Sloan, because I've got two other big Sloan fans with me today uh, on the podcast, Alex Rishko and Noyan Hilmi. Welcome back to the pod, guys. Thanks for having thanks. us. Yeah, thanks. I'm going to ask a question first, and I'll ask Alex. Alex, when was the first time you heard Sloan? Okay. First time I heard Sloan was on the DGC Rarities Volume 1 comp, so the CD. So that kind of gave me zero perspective of how big these guys were. Mm -hmm. So Sonic Youth. So that's kind of the reason I bought that, I think, was because I was a fan of Sonic Youth at the time. Mm -hmm. So kind of got in through that way. But that was the first time I heard about them. Noyan, how about you? You know what? I'm trying. I'm trying to figure it out. I, it's got to be like much music, underwhelmed music video. I can just I can picture myself listening to like that feedback coming in or whatever that sound is. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure that was it. Okay, so my the first time I'm pretty sure I heard them. This is like a toss up because it it it's totally possible that it was on the DGC Rarities comp but I'm pretty sure it was on Much Music for Coax Me. 
the video for Coax Me. But also, I remember specifically that Much Music was promoting Sloan really hard at that time. So the Coax Me video was on a lot, but also there was an HMV ad for Twice Removed, the, the album Twice Removed from 1994, which had Coax Me, like the video, within the ad too. So it was like constant rotation. So it was really ingrained. I remember it was maybe like a summertime release or so like that. I was home a lot and constantly listened to that. I don't know when I bought Twice Removed, but I remember listening to Coax Me a lot. And it was another thing where I was looking at this band and we're kind of coming out of the grunge era and we're seeing a lot of new style coming up in 1994. Uh, you know, it's a lot of new haircuts and a lot of new style. People aren't like looking like Kurt Cobain anymore. And Sloan in the Coax Me video, I could not figure out those guys what their era it was supposed to be because they were all wearing like T-shades and like Nehru jackets. They looked like they were from the 60s. It didn't make any sense to me. And you start to think as like a 14-year-old, is this actually from now or is this old? I don't get it. Yeah, that was a great video. I think that was a big draw for me was I was big into, at that era, I was thinking about image and music a lot because I went to like the Sex Pistols Filthy Lucre tour in 96 and then I was listening to the Misfits who have big image things and then Sloan who I think had the best image of any Canadian band Catherine Stockhausen's photography and the design for one chord to another really made me want to pick up a camera move forward that way so I think you can always argue about which songs were better, but they had the best look for sure and design. Their record covers were just a great draw. You wanted to pick up those records. Like there's a lot of bad album covers, like really horrible album covers. And Sloan, I feel like they're they're batting twelve for twelve. Like every album cover looks great. It's always yeah, a portrait it, is, of the it band. is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> but like even as much as as the songs are are great the image they had was really up there with any other band, which like, and then I remember them playing varsity arena at that time as well. So, and then Beck was playing like the next week. So I really had no idea how big these guys were at this time or, or like where they were coming from, but they looked great and sounded great. So it was, you know, I had them alongside in my head in the same level as like all these great bands. It's such a good, uh, like modern, but not modern look like that. They had that almost like the psych rock look, but then they, the graphic design was really mixed with like a modern element. I don't know. I, I still like in high school, like I had really long hair in my like grunge days. And then I was like, I need to cut my hair like Chris Murphy. It never looked as cool as his, but uh, they just had such a rad, rad look. Yeah. And, but like to go back to that DJC comp, it's like, I was thinking when they released the uh, Twice Removed box set, I was thinking if they had put the People of the Sky demo on that, it's just insane because it's like to be on a comp with those bands and then to just cover your friend's band. In hindsight, it's the coolest thing ever. But, you know, to like unsolicited career advice. But I think if they had put people in the sky next to Beck's bogus flow, like just lo-fi acoustic sounding, I think it would have really 
But that's the thing that we we talked about. Which ways could Sloan have turned differently to yeah. end up in different places? Because they were all over the map. Sloan has had one of the most fascinating careers, in my opinion. Especially coming from Canada. Like, I mean, we're championing this Canadian band that's still going. They're still making records. There's still four guys, four original guys in the band still going after 30 years. And they're a band that, after, you know, a handful of shows, got scooped up by DGC Records in 1992 at the height of DGC Records. And if anybody needs context, I mean, just listen to, you know, what Alex already mentioned off of that comp. It, on that comp, there's Nirvana, Hole, Beck, Sonic Youth, Counting Crows. Like these are the bands that were on DGC at the time. This is like yeah, a- it made no sense how how that could even happen. It was incredible. I know, as somebody at that, especially when you're young, you you just have no concept. You think, oh, you're a rock star. You're on this exact like if you're on this label, then you're this or that. But it really put them on this level that no other Canadian band really was ever you you always kind of knew that they were kind of canadian but to me it's like when people say oh sloan was a canadian band it's like to me it was like at the beginning their stuff was so you know they were on dgc they were connected to all these huge like the biggest bands in the world that it was really just confusing to me which was you know put them on a different, you know, you listen to them with different ears then. DGC had them, they had them for, they had them for smeared and then they put out twice removed. Twice removed was way different than anything else sounding at the time. And if we listen to it now, like, you know, it it sounds like very sixties influenced, but you have to really put yourself back to like 1994 and hear about the, hear that record and think that like everything else was just like, uh, another nirvana offshoot like everything was like this really grungy heavy guitar everybody was like still into that era and that's why i say like that album just like aged way better there's so many other nirvana clones in that era that just are really dated and sloan that's why i feel like they've they've aged really well because they just didn't stick to that and they they did what they wanted and you know ultimately they didn't really get that record promoted by dgc but they still have like a time of sound that record to me like is so ballsy like they kind of came off of smeared and it was a you know like a loud kind of textured my bloody valentine like it had they typically they had a sound right that album has a sound to it right and they totally abandoned that and twice removed is essentially like a buffet table of different flavors of pop that kind of record to me it being cohesive, not sounding like a B-sides record, but all sounding different, but still having the glue was just like mind-blowing. And- but Sloan's another really great example, and I see this a lot, where there's a band who gets signed for for a reason, for a sound, and then they change up that sound for their second record. And not only maybe does the label get annoyed but maybe the fans do as well i don't think the fans got annoyed with sloan for this record but you look at it it's a very different record than what smeared was smeared was a loud noisy record what with like some really great pop sensibility but they went a completely different way it's a very like clean guitar record not a lot of effects not a lot of frills and 
it's literally the product of guys like they just didn't want to do it anymore. So, and I always think of like the history of Sloan, where those guys came from. Like they had ten years before this of being in like the hardcore scene and like punk scene, playing really loud stuff, and then just getting sick of it. We just saw like the tail end of it all of a sudden at like twice removed era, and then they just kind of became what they became. I feel like I feel like Smeared is really on its own in their career, and everything else is is really reflects what their sound is. But it's that band in their infancy, you know, um, like like you said, they had all the punk and hardcore stuff. They were evolving and constantly evolving. Like I'm just going back to your initial your initial point is, you know, like a, a label signs um, a band for a particular sound. And when they're introducing them to a wide audience, I think that wide audience wants them to stick to that sound. Right. But then that core audience typically if they've if they've been in for like the long haul they'll actually come along for the ride with the evolution of that that band's sound and probably be more loyal to that band as they evolve as long as they're still making good music but if you, if you kind of keep make writing the same song over and over again i don't know um if you're gonna have the 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 deepest rooted fans yeah i think and i think they've also just they've aged also in the places they play and you know it's like when when uh i had my daughter uh they played the elementary school it's like perfect like it's like very (laughs) punk rock venues and like diy stuff it's like they have also grown with their audience which i think is incredibly smart and it's like the garage sale this summer it's like how more, you know, 40, 50-year-olds, like, oh, no, my garage sale is going to compete against Sloan's garage sale now. It's like <laughs> it's like my punk band is playing the same night as their punk band, but we're 50 and 40s. And, like, it's, you know, they've really done a great job at growing without becoming embarrassing. You know, like, I really think they're doing things the right way. And, and like nobody else, and it doesn't seem forced, like they, they're forced to be there. It really seems like this is the way that they would choose to promote themselves now. Do you think that's just like a function of them being, you know, however old they are? Not that they were ever like pretending to be cool or whatever, trying too hard to be cool, but just accepting who you are and being like, let's just do, they all, like most of them have families and they all do their thing and they're just like, let's do this and just kind of letting go mm-hmm. just like let go of what what is cool what should we do for our career like that kind of stuff and just kind of being a human being being like hey we have a bunch of stuff in our garage we want less stuff and we want money let's have a garage sale yeah it's great it's like you know i want to see them in 10 years playing casinos or something <laughs> like like just keep this route of just growing with your audience and they'll, they'll find a lot of success. I think going this way in an art sense, which is the way, like I kind of was saying at the beginning, I found my way into this band and, and it's why I'm a fun, like a fan of this band. And like an interesting question I would ask you guys was what keeps you guys a fan for 30 years of a band? Instead of, you know, like, how are you guys still together? 
It's like, why are you guys still a fan of this band after 30 years? And I think it's a lot of these reasons that we're touching on. I think, I think a big one for me is respect, right? Like they've never done anything really unrespectable, right? Mm -hmm. They've never, they've just been a, a, a solid band. They stick to, you know, writing good songs and kind of being great when I see them live. You know, whenever I've, I've spoken to any of them as humans as well, they've always been really great. I don't know. I, I, I think respectability just goes a really, really long way with that. Like whether, whether, you know, you talk to them a person or not, that doesn't, that's not it. But I mean, just as a fan, they've always, always been a very, they're, they're great musicians. They're great songwriters. Um, they put out good records. You know, some of my favorite records of the nineties are theirs for sure. I, I don't even know, like there's probably a small amount of bands that I saw you know, as many times as I saw Sloan in the nineties, I could, uh, probably in the double digits for sure. Right. And they're always fantastic. And, you know, I respect all them. Everything that they've done has been respectable. Nothing yep. that's ever been like, Oh, you know what? They are great. Except for that time they did this, uh -huh. you know, and you know, about that, you know, this, this blotch on their, their reputation or whatever, whether it's personal or musically or professional or whatever, they've always just been, just been, you know, it's like a, good respectable friend he's like you yeah. know yeah exactly yeah. No, yeah it's funny you say that it's like i found that i also wouldn't be able to tell you how many times i've seen them but it's it's and it's not in a way like oh i follow them on tour or anything it's they just happen to be where where i am in life sometimes it's like they when i went to photography school they were playing the college I went to. It's like when I went to university, they played the university I went to. I remember once I was walking in New York and they were playing at the Bowery Ballroom. I walked in. Once I was out west and saw Chris on the street and they were playing in Edmonton just randomly. It's like how many times have I seen this band? Like I got between the bridges by going to like um, the, the Kingdom's dance night when I was 18 or something got hit in the head with it by Martin Streak, the DJ. <laughs> and it's like, and it's my favorite album of theirs. R.I.P. Yeah, R.I.P. Yeah. If I forget for five minutes about how much I love Sloan, and I'm like, you know what? I should go to the show. I go to the show, and I'm like, I'm literally having the time of my life. They're kind of ageless, too, you know? Like, I don't know. Like, they, uh, they take me back. Um, but not in like this weird, like, oh, make me feel like I'm young, you know, they perform the songs like they did back then, or possibly even better, you know, so I, yeah. I won't, I, I'll, I, I'll try not to miss them. And it's really a great show because of their musicianship. Those guys aren't like crazy over the top, put up a like light show. Like this isn't like some like real stage band with a bunch of effects. These are guys who just get up. And their songs are just that good, and their musicianship is just that good. It just speaks for itself. And the last time I saw them, I went with Noyen a few months ago for the Navy Blues 25th anniversary tour. So they played all of Navy Blues, and then they played a giant greatest hit set. So they essentially played every song I wanted to hear. Navy Blues is my favorite record of Sloan's. And yeah, there was like no frills on that stage. They found the old tour banner that they had from 1998 for the Navy Blues tour in their storage unit, threw that up and were saying to the crowd, 
Like we're leaving this here. It's so huge. We don't want it. We just brought it out because we found it. Like that was it. That was their frill. I think other than that, like nothing is usually on stage for these guys. And yeah, like their musicianship, they are incredibly solid. Like one of those bands that like does they're they're so perfect at like writing a great pop song with some with some great melody and a little bit of flash, but like not over the top at all. And the the one thing like Andrew is my favorite drummer. I feel like he's my favorite drummer of all time. I love his drumming so much. He's got such great style and such great ideas. And I just want to stare at him the whole time. And like, and again, like this guy is just like rolling and rolling, but not being a wanker on the drums at all. It's so smart. It's so tight. Like it's, oh, it's so beautiful. I love, just love watching him. And then, and then you, you get Chris on the drum set, <laughs> and he is he is the embodiment of animal, yeah. and he is like totally the exact opposite that he is all show like all like it's amazing he's an amazing drummer he's an unreal it. drummer I know. but the show that he puts on while he's drumming is just like oh my god just turn all the lights off put the spotlight <laughs> on him and he will like he will blow your mind he's just he's just that good so between the two of them it's just insane i think those guys have lived really great lives and i think they've have a lot to be proud of and you know, it's it's like going back to what we're talking about. Like they got signed to this huge label, and then they decided they weren't going to stay with them. They were like kind of breaking up a little bit, and after twice removed, the future was a little uncertain. And they decided to put out one chord to another, and they thought it would be a great idea to put it out on their record label, Murder Records. And DGC said, "You know, we're happy to put that out," and they said, "No." And I mean. For a young band at that time to like really stick to what you want to do and stick to your art is a big deal. Like these guys were in their mid twenties and you know, they had a massive opportunity. A lot of other bands probably would have just sold out and just like done whatever, just like keep, keep their career on that record label. And these guys didn't, and they still had a great career. They still put out amazing records. They have a ton to be proud of. It's been consistent for 30 years. They had like how many more hit records in the nineties right after twice removed. And I think about like Navy Blues, they got to that fourth record and they have their biggest hit on that, Money City Maniacs. And this was all them. They just didn't want to be a part of something that wasn't going to agree with what they wanted to personally do. And that's Yeah, I think they I think they've definitely created their own path which is one of the most, you know, the best bands are the ones that create their own paths or the most interesting bands. And it's because it is, it is kind of easy to just follow the molds and stuff. But I think, you know, because there's such a great interview coming up uh, with Jay, mm -hmm. I would just say, yeah, just don't miss these guys and, you know, buy their albums and that's it. Well, you'll, you'll also, like, if you haven't listened to Sloan a long time, go to one of their shows and you'll be reminded about how many of their songs that you know and that you love and, you know, how great they'll make you feel, too. That's another big thing to end on as well is, like, how many hits these guys have. I mean, obviously, we're fans. We know a lot. And, I mean, I can go to a show and know a lot of songs. But think of there is a there is a radio single off every record. And, I mean... You you think of going from like especially from 
smeared up until uh like action packed like into the like these are like every single record has like a big hit or multiple radio hits these guys were not one hit wonders these were not a band that you know had one thing and they're just kind of like r- like riding that wave it's a, like their songwriting is really fantastic and they can just keep cranking out songs and i'm that's incredibly hard to do like most people only have that one hit in them. They only have that one great idea for a song. And these guys, I can't believe as a four, four pack of like guys who've been together for 30 years, like consistently writing great songs. I don't know if I could ever put together like a, if someone was like, make a best of Sloan record, you know, and we're, we're like, you need, to, it can only be, uh, I don't know, like 12 or 15 songs. I feel like that would be really, really hard to do. And it wouldn't be fair either because like, I, I feel like there's a, like, as a listener, I have a relationship with this band and each songwriter to it that it's, I'd also want it to be fair because I respect each of them as songwriters and what, what they do. They're all so good at each individual thing that they do that I want to make sure that they get the representation that they deserve on that, on that best up. But I don't know, that would be a really, really hard, hard exercise. Yeah, especially since like I feel like those records stand on their own too. I mean, there's a lot of hit singles that I want to listen to, but they're one of the few bands that have multiple records that I can just listen to front to front to back, which is very rare for me as well. Especially Navy Blues, that's my favorite record. I just think it's their most accomplished, and I just I love every song on it. I think it flows so well in and out. That's their that's their Abbey Road to me. You know, like they're the the songs flow together the production's good the styles are all over the place um it you know if they if they had broken up right at the end of navy blues i would feel like it's like okay they they tied tied the gift up or tied it with a nice neat little bow and that was the perfect like four album career for this band but i'm not complaining like they put out amazing records after that i'm just saying like if they had stopped right there I would, I would have been like, wow, that's that's an amazing like uh, accomplishment. Okay, I think that's a good place for us to stop talking. I think we should move forward and hear from one of the band members themselves talk about Sloan's career. Here's our discussion with Jay Ferguson of Sloan. I'm really, really uh, happy and excited that you've uh, that you've uh, agreed to join me on this podcast, Jay. Yeah, no problem. I'm excited to do it. Uh, yeah, I, I even found this issue and uh flip through it and was uh whatever recognized some names and then some names i'm like i don't remember who they are <laughs> like who is who i don't remember some were i, I don't know anyway, we can go through it but it's uh yeah. yeah it's funny to funny to flip through seeing some yeah like familiar stuff and just stuff i'm like wow or things i like remember from that time but that's it you know what i mean then they mm. sort of disappeared or something like that anyhow i yeah, feel for fortunate sure. feel fortunate to say that I'm I'm grateful that we're still here and we've lasted long enough to talk about this magazine from 26 years ago, I guess. Now. Yeah, <laughs> quite yeah. a while. But yeah. yeah, 1996 was one of my favorite years for music as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, mainly what I'd like to talk about is um, that it's the 25th anniversary of Navy Blues this year. Yeah. But what I'd like to do is kind of work up to that point. We we have a magazine here that's from 1996, Chart Magazine, with uh, Sloan on the cover. Um, mm-hmm. This would have been for the uh, One Chord to Another era of the band. Yep, doing that's this, right. Doing this cover story. 
Um, but I'd like to start, um, and I'd also like to say, Jay, like there's just so many questions that I want to ask you. Um, just, <laughs> just, uh, it's all right. That's why I'm here. No problem. Because I've just been such a fan of Sloan for so long. And it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you finally get an opportunity to, to ask questions and kind of like piece together some things you've always wanted to know. So I'm definitely going to take that opportunity. Um, I'd like to just start quickly with, uh, kind of a DGC era question. Sure. Um, yeah. And work from kind of twice removed up to uh, Navy Blues. Yeah, sure. No problem. So I just want to start quickly by saying, you know, like you, Sloan was signed to DGC. Mm-hmm. Um, and DGC was such a huge, important label in the 1990s with so many like massively important artists, including yourselves. What was it like being on DGC when you first signed? And what were the early days of your signing like? You know, were you guys partying in L.A.? I mean, <laughs> we went to L.A. for sure. Like, even before we signed, like, uh, we were flown out there to meet people at the office and things like that. But it was so quick. Like, I don't know how to describe uh, how how outrageous and Cinderella story it was. You know what I mean? Like, earlier that year, we had barely... Had we even played out of Halif- outside of Halifax? I don't think we had. You know, so this would be uh, 1992. Uh, we, you know, we'd been playing shows in Halifax. We'd played about 12 shows, you know what I mean, in Halifax leading up to like early 1992. Uh, then there was a, a festival, I guess, that they have in Halifax every year called the East Coast Music Awards. It's more just like a, a bunch of showcases and things to bring people from Toronto, uh, bring people from the music business basically to the East Coast just to, uh, present and try and promote East Coast music, and then they have an award show, sort of at the end of it. You know what I mean? It's it's mainly just a way of it's just a big party to promote you know East Coast music. Anyhow, so you know, uh, bands like us at the time probably weren't always invited to those sort of showcases that they had. So uh, that's what happened. We weren't. Re- I think we applied to have a showcase. We didn't get one. And so during the East Coast Music Awards, which are sort of like be like half a week and a weekend and uh, we set up our own showcase at like an art gallery uh and uh, we had reached out to some people in uh uh, some people at like different record labels that were coming down just sending them cassettes of some recordings we had made just on the off chance hey maybe would maybe someone will be interested in seeing us play and uh eventually uh, we we got our own showcase for the, for the East Coast Music Awards. So now we ended up with two shows. We had an East Coast Music Awards one and then our own show at an art gallery. And the one person who took an interest in our band was a guy named Cam Carpenter who worked for MCA in Canada. MCA was the distributor of Geffen DGC in, uh, in Canada. And um, so he ended up, I, I wrote him uh, a note and I sent him a cassette. He sought us out when we... Uh, when we played, he came to our showcase and he came to our, our art gallery show. And, um, he also brought along a guy, um, from network records who are famous for signing Sarah McLaughlin and skinny puppy and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, anyhow, so sorry, this is, this is the long winded version of, uh, getting to DGC, <laughs> but, sure. uh, you know, so, so Cam Carpenter took an interest in our band and he was like, you know, I'd like to sign you guys to MCA. And we were kind of like, we didn't know if we, I mean, it almost sounds obnoxious now, but I don't think we weren't super keen to sign to a, uh, a major label in Canada. I think we, we, we just had this sort of in quotation marks, sort of cool consciousness. We sort of wanted to be like on an independent label because we knew that a lot of bands that had a longer career, maybe started out on an independent label 
and then, you know, uh, grew in a more grassroots oriented way, as opposed to just being on a major label immediately. And then, you know, you're not really being discovered. You're sort of being shoved down, you're, you know, sh uh, you're being shoved down people's throats because you're on a major label and like, this is the new thing. Anyhow. Mm. Uh, so MCA, we weren't sure network offered us a deal basically about two weeks after this East coast music awards. And so I, I don't know how to describe how outrageous even just that was to us. Like we were a band who'd played a dozen shows in, in Halifax. We're from Nova Scotia, just an area of the country that really doesn't get any, didn't get any attention from major labels or anything like that. Uh, Cam Carpenter from MCA uh, befriended uh, a guy who worked at DGC. His name was Todd Sullivan, mm -hmm. who hadn't really signed a band yet. Todd was visiting Canada. Todd or uh, Cam played him the cassette of Underwhelmed. And Todd was like, who's this band? I'd really like to see them play. And uh, he was going to a, uh, the Music West Fest out in Vancouver in uh, early May of 1992. And he was like, yeah, if you guys play a show out there, you know, I'll come see you play. So basically, we drove from Halifax to Vancouver, played about <laughs> two and a half shows. Oh, my God. And, and played for Todd Sullivan, met up with him. Chip, who was our lawyer at the time, came out as well. And uh, Todd was interested in signing us, probably more based on the recordings that we had done that ended up being the smeared record and the peppermint EP than our live show. I think we were okay live, but we weren't fantastic. That's for sure. Uh, but we met him and he liked us and he, and he took a chance on us. And so when we heard, you know, sorry, before we'd even gone out there and before we, we had heard like, Oh, DGC is interested. Like our mind was blown. This was basically at the time of, of nevermind by Nirvana, uh, Sonic youth, uh, whole were being signed. There was Urge Overkill. Teenage Fan Club was on DGC and had just released Bandwagon esque, you know, the year before. Mm -hmm. So if there was any major label to be on, this was the label. Like it was ground zero. They were just like scooping up all the cool independent bands that we admired and liked. And uh, for that to happen to a band from Halifax like us was, uh, it was like a Cinderella story. It was outrageous at the time and it all moved so quickly. So sorry to get back to your original question <laughs> after I gave you that long-winded answer. We, uh, you know, it was from February, 1992 to, you know, not really knowing anybody or, or nobody outside of Halifax really knowing about our band to, you know, June of, uh, of 1992 a few months later we're mixing smeared in los angeles and geffen was paying for it so it was super it, it all happened so quick and we weren't really i don't think we were really entertained you know once dgc was once dgc was interested then all of a sudden every major label was interested warner brothers uh you know sire in the united states uh uh bmg i forget there, it was just like everybody comes a calling because everybody w was looking to dgc like what are they looking for okay because they were so hot at the time and uh so uh, but once dgc was in play we kind of thought that's where we want to be just based on their track record and their obvious uh people that were working there had backgrounds in college radio and everything like that so mm -hmm. so uh you know it was just yeah it was just mind-blowing it was like a cinderella story it was it was it was something that i dreamed of happening like wow wouldn't it be great to release a record you know what i mean <laughs> and then have it on dgc was just uh was uh was outrageous you know so there you go anyhow sorry for that long-winded answer there for you no chris or sorry uh uh jay that's exactly what i was looking yeah. for i was gonna say uh the, the reason i said that was chris murphy actually he told me a story i got to i talked to him like 20 years ago 
uh, oh, okay. when I was in university yeah. and I asked yeah. him uh, just, I don't know what I was asking him at a show. And he said that you guys played, you had to play for some executives, do some sort of showcase. And the yeah. same day that you were doing a showcase, Weezer was doing the same showcase. And, yeah. And yeah. Chris said he got sunstroke and yeah. was really sick. And yeah. you guys and Weezer were both kind of, I don't know if it was like auditioning or like playing, like what was the situation there? No. So that was basically on our very first tour for smeared. And, uh, so this would have been our first proper show in Los Angeles playing, uh, in LA touring for smeared. And a lot of people like Geffen probably hadn't seen us play yet. You know, there'd been a few people, mm-hmm. but, uh, and Todd Sullivan, who had signed us, he had asked us, he was like, Hey, there's this band Weezer who I'm thinking of signing would you mind if I put them on your show and they can open up? And then it also helps because some of the people at DGC will be able to see them too. They're like, sure, great, whatever. And I remember hearing a cassette of the Weezer demos and I was like, oh my God, like this is great. Like they'd be awesome. Uh, And I remember Rivers had a mustache and they even did a Beatles cover in their set, (laughs) which is so strange. But uh, yeah, the, the day before we were out river rafting, like outside of San Francisco. And I think Chris was wearing like basically a black, an all black ensemble and i think he basically was unwell the next day and uh so we didn't play a very good show <laughs> sadly in front of uh a lot of people who worked at dgc uh who uh who had never seen us before but uh but anyhow we all know what happened to weezer so so it, it worked out well for them but i was glad so that was the the other big thing todd our first the first band he signed was us the second band he signed was weezer and they obviously uh they uh that was really it was a good thing for him because it also gave Todd more leverage at uh, Geffen, which helped us a little bit uh, in the future, but uh, not much as it would play out kind of, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but no, no hard feelings. Like we loved Weezer when we saw them. We're like, Holy crap. These guys are amazing. Yeah, it was great. That's fantastic. Yeah. But it was too bad about Chris's predicament. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but then yeah. were there some other great shows on that tour? It was so, so it was hard. That tour was because we'd never played the States before and we were touring on a bus and you know, it's, it almost America is like, it's like playing four different countries. It's, it's almost ridiculous to do it in a blanket. Okay. You guys got to go from Maine to New Mexico. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it almost doesn't make sense. It almost makes more sense to start in the Northeast and cultivate that and then grow from there or something. But, but when you're dealing with a, a major label, once again, like Geffen or DGC, when they're working when they're promoting a record, they're promoting a record nationally. So they're not going to do just like, oh yeah, we'll just do Chicago to New York. You know, they're going to, they just the way they work, they're going to promote it everywhere. So they expect you to be available to go everywhere. So we toured the States. It was like a good 10 weeks and it was really draining. Um, especially because, you know, there were, there were good shows, you know, you would play Detroit because it's five minutes from Canada and there's like, oh my God, there's 500 people at our show. We're going to be huge. You know, and then you go to uh, Minnesota and there's five people there and you're like, oh, okay, now I understand the reality <laughs> of touring in America, which is massive and nobody really knows who you are, except for Underwhelm was getting a little bit of radio play, but it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like most people knew who we were. It was very select few, you know? Okay. So, so it was a challenge for sure. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> and then I want to move on to... Because this is something I've always thought about. I've mm-hmm. thought about this a lot, Jay. Um, <laughs> that famously DGC rejected the album Twice Removed, and they wouldn't promote it. And 
my understanding is that it just didn't fit the sound of the time or the the sound that they thought that they had signed you for. Yeah. But and you know, but I feel that this was a time in 1984 when grunge was kind of on its way out, and mm. other artists like you mentioned, like Weezer, were you know, which had like a similar kind of tone in songwriting to you, were kind of mm-hmm. going up. And then mm-hmm. I just look at other label mates, you know, like Counting Crows and Posies, That Dog, um, you know, like m- melodic non-heavy bands. And then there was like Beck and Sonic Youth were kind of on another planet doing their own thing. It just mm-hmm. always seemed weird to me that DGC would reject Twice Removed. It was, I mean, I mean for sure. And even other records that were running parallel. I remember Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain by Pavement coming out either right as we had finished Twice Removed or right when we were in the middle of it. And I almost felt like, oh, this is something akin to what we're doing. Like, it wasn't loud, grungy guitars. It was more pared back and kind of quiet and had ballads on it, but was a little bit unusual, but with variety. Um, I think it just came down to, I mean, when you mentioned bands like Beck, like Beck really shot out of the cannon quickly with Loser. So he had their attention. He had Geffen's attention. Uh Sonic Youth already had, you know, had built their audience over the better part of, by that point, you know, 11 years or so, 12 years, mm-hmm. uh, and had really, you know, they're almost left to do their own thing. They had their own audience. It didn't matter. Um, but I think the people who are working the radio, uh, the radio aspect of Smeared, um, I think they just heard uh, Twice Removed and they're like, we don't what we tried to build they, they, their argument was like what we tried to build on was smeared this is this sounds like a different band like we can't really build on what we started with so th- what they wanted to do the, the the guy who signed us todd was 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 fully aware of the record he was uh he knew all the demos he was there while we were recording he knew what to expect and he knew what the record was going to sound like it was basically the marketing and radio departments who were like I don't know, like, do you want to try it again or add some grungy guitars to some of these songs so that we can push it to radio? Uh, I think that's what their um, their issue was. So they left it to us. They were like, okay, go back and record, you know, some more and change it and try and make it more in fitting what we're expecting. Um, or we can't really market this. And we decided we're going to leave it as is because we like the way it sounds. And they're like, okay. And you know, what we, we got, what we expected. They didn't really do any promotion. They didn't really know what to do with it or, or where, where to market it or whatever. Um, but I hear what you're saying. There are other bands that were unusual, like say that dog, um, or, uh, uh, counting crows and things like that. But maybe they just thought like that dog, I don't know how well that record did, but counting crows were massive, but I think they just, that was just like a different plane to them or, or a different team probably working that record. So, um, I don't know. It was just frustrating. And then once we toured twice removed with no support, that just became really challenging. And you're playing in America to a lot of people who uh, were not coming to our shows. You know, there was <laughs> not really playing to anybody. But in Canada, it was a different story. We were still building on what we had built with Smeared. Like uh, in Canada, uh, like I said, DGC was um, distributed by MCA. So all the friends that we had made at MCA were still keen on Sloan and were pushing coax me at radio and people of the sky. And, uh, we, we were still doing, you know, we were still on an upwards trajectory as far as shows and radio was concerned in Canada, maybe not to the next level that everybody expected, but it was still, uh, doing well enough that we we were maintaining an audience in Canada. Yeah. And, you know, it's just my opinion that I feel 
that twice removed is just more of a timeless record because it didn't follow the grunge pattern at the time. And a yeah. lot of those, a lot of that music, you know, that it's kind of like getting into a post grunge era in 1994, just seems very dated now where twice removed just sounds more sophisticated in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Thanks. like, yeah, you're very welcome. Jay. <laughs> um, but what was influencing that sound at the time, you know, coming out of, uh, you know, um, smeared era, uh, and I know you guys are, you know, listening to a lot of shoegaze bands. What was mm-hmm. influencing Twice Removed when you moved into that? Uh, you're totally right. Like Smeared was less influenced. Like we definitely got called grunge or Canada's Nirvana because it was the easiest thing for, you know, a, you know, CTV news to be able to compare, you know, to a broad listener base or, or viewership or whatever. Uh, so, um, yeah, that definitely influenced. So, so, so it was less about grunge on Smear, and it was definitely about you know British band. I mean, Sonic Youth for sure, but definitely more to me about like Ride or My Bloody Valentine for sure was a band that we could all agree on and and was a big influence on, on Smeared. And uh, you're right. By the by the time 1994 rolled around, I think we were just maybe a little bit tired of just super loud guitars night after night, and uh, and also kind of like um, so many bands that were jumping on that uh post nirvana bandwagon that just kind of want to distance ourselves from that a little bit like oh let's try something new so i i feel from my perspective uh i mean you know i don't want to speak for everybody but it was twice removed was maybe uh influenced a little more by like the third velvet underground album mm-hmm. or fleetwood mac rumors uh and maybe pavement to a degree for sure and uh you know, Beatles records and things like that. So it was just like dialing the guitars back a little bit and, but still opening up a variety. Andrew really liked the band Slint. And I know that, uh, um, uh, before I do, I always think of as like a slight homage to Slint, like the, the guitar parts and stuff like that in that, from my perspective, I don't want to speak for him, but I, I know that he really loved Spiderland when that came out. So that was something that was probably, uh, in his, um, you know, sort of, his listening booth at that, at that time. But, but those would be some of the things that probably made it made their way into the, uh, sound that, uh, led up to the recording of twice removed for sure. So even I was going to say the drum pattern on coax me is the same as uh, go your own way on, on rumors by Fleetwood Mac. So, Oh, wow. That's <laughs> a loving you. Yeah. Anyhow, I never thought of that. And that's one yeah. of my favorite drum patterns too. I always loved that, you know, and I, I like, I have to say that uh, Andrew's, probably my favorite drummer of all time. He's like, great. I, I really love his drumming and I always loved like his, uh, you know, he just had great ideas. So, but that's amazing. I never mm-hmm. thought of that, 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 uh, that comparison to, from Fleetwood Mac to, uh, Coke. Yeah. 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 That was the one that's a little homage. I mean, I don't know if Chris built it on specifically. I told Andrew there's demos of that song where it's more just coaxed me as a straight beat. And we were even we were even digging through some old recordings for some future releases, like whether it's box sets or bootlegs or whatever. But uh, yeah, it's funny hearing uh, versions of "Coax Me" played at the tail end of the Smeared tour, but it's just like a straight beat all the way through it. So it's a little bit different than uh, the way it turned out. But uh, I think it turned out for the better with that uh, cool cool pattern, cool drum pattern. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. It's a timeless pattern now. Like it really it really makes the song. So. What happens after twice removed leading into one chord, you know, and especially we're talking, you know, if you look at this magazine that uh, we're referencing from 1996, <laughs> there's, there was talk about like a breakup, you know, in the media, 
but mm. it isn't really explicitly said in this article. You guys aren't really saying anything like that. So I want to know, like, was there ever actually like a breakup of the band during that? Was this a time where you were just taking time off and you came back together with songs? Because there was at the time a lot of talk of like, you know, this is our final show. So I just wanted to like have a clear answer of what was going on between those two records. Uh, it's funny uh, when before I before I hopped on this interview with you, I quickly read that article just <laughs> in case anything scandalous was said, and I was like, "Oh my god, I don't want to refer to that." Uh, but yeah, it's we're definitely being coy. I know Patrick talks about it the most, um, and uh, definitely being coy about the whole breakup thing. It's like, "Oh, we were taking a break, whatever." Uh, to to be honest, like at the end of 1994, after touring for Choice Removed and the the frustrating elements of that and. Uh, Andrew lived in Toronto. We didn't really rehearse a lot. Uh, um, not not that Andrew moving was was you know it, it, it was maybe a little bit of an element. Like I, maybe we didn't feel like we're a, a a band all together all the time. But uh, it was more just I, I we had a meeting and we kind of decided like I don't think we're going to continue anymore. And I remember Patrick and I being like, "Are you crazy? Like this is like we have the golden opportunity." Geffen was still interested in putting out our next record. Um, so we weren't dropped by Geffen or anything like that. And, uh, you know, we just had this meeting and, and Chris and Andrew, Chris was like, well, okay, well, let's just forget it. And Andrew was like, okay. And I was like, oh my gosh, what's happening? So, but we still had tour dates that were already booked into the next year uh, in the late winter. So like February of 1995. So we decided to honor those because we could still make money and blah, blah, blah. So we did those. And all the while, we kept getting offers. It's like, Hey, can you come and play this festival for, you know, whatever amount of money? It's like, okay, well, I guess we got to do it. Like you can't turn down that kind of money or turn that down. And then we got offered to play our own edge fest. You know what I mean? And then we thought like, okay, this will probably be the last show. So we were sort of talking about it as the last show. Um, but then, you know, all, all that while Chris and I were spending a lot of, and Patrick a little bit, but uh, spending our time working on murder records during 1995, releasing, you know, a record by the super friends, a uh, record by hip club groove, which had come out earlier. And we kind of thought, Oh, let's spend some time working on that. And then eventually as 90, 1995 moved on, we kind of thought, you know, it'd be cool if we actually had a Sloan record that was on murder records and not on DGC. So, you know, we had told GGC already, like, I think we're going to, we're not going to play any more shows. I think we're going to stop. We just let them know out of, you know, good faith. And then, uh, you know, we kind of thought, oh, let's put out one more record and we'll put it on Murder Records in Canada. We told Geffen this late 1995. We just sort of said, look, I think we might do one more record. Do you want to put it out in the States? And they're like, okay. So there's actually copies pressed up of one chord to another that are like promotional copies that have DGC on it as a thing. So, oh, wow. uh, so there's copies of that kicking around. And then there's like, you know, mock-ups of the artwork with Geffen on it and everything like that. Oh. Um, but we, so we started working on that. We were working on the record and we, we, uh, um, we thought, oh, it'll be great. It'll come out on Murder Records, but that'll be it. You know, we'll just do this one thing. It'll help benefit Murder Records. And, uh, you know, we, we um, put it out in Canada and Good and Everyone started doing well at Much Music. And radio started playing it. And I was like, oh, you know, well, I guess maybe we better make a second video. So we made a video for, you know, and there was so much enthusiasm for the record from the, from the label and from people that were like, okay, well, I guess we better make a third, you know, it just kept, it just kept snowballing. And there was so much good, goodwill and, 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 and people liked the record that we just continued anyhow. So Geffen was going to put the record out. We sort of realized that it was almost more like 
probably going to be more like a favor. You know what I mean? Like a uh, just sort of put it out and not do any work on it. We thought like, no, let's try and go with a label who might give it a push. And so we told Gaffin, we told them, you know what? I think we don't want to go with you guys anymore. <laughs> Can we go with another label? And we found this label called the Enclave who uh, put out one chord to another in the United States. And, uh, and they didn't last long, but they put a real push behind it when it was released. So, you know, we, w- we were grateful that Todd Sullivan, our A&R guy at Geffen, was kind enough to be like, okay, don't worry. Like, I'll just, I'll just can it at Geffen and you can go pursue somewhere else. Because I think we just thought that would be in everybody's best interest just because, like I said, Geffen was probably just going to put it out as like, yeah, we'll release it. Yeah, and just put it in the stores and not do anything about it. Right. But it was doing swell in Canada. We were so excited by it that we thought, no, let's try and find a label to give it a real good chance in the United States. So, uh, so that's kind of what happened. Like we were kind of over to be quite honest. And one chord to another was mainly just going to be like a token last record to put some money in the murder records bank account, just to help keep that, just to sort of fund that side of it, uh, in order to help put out other bands. But, um, it just did so well that we're still here today. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, that was the turning point to be quite honest, putting out one chord to another and it's, it's success really snowballed and encouraged us to do Navy blues. And then, to be like a full-time band again, for sure. Well, that's well. that was going to be my next question. Was putting mm-hmm. out one chord, was that the catalyst to making Navy Blues? Like, when did you decide that you would make Navy Blues at that time? I think it was just, you know, one chord to another did so well, you know, uh, that we were, we at, and we were also back in control of our career a little more. We weren't, uh, you know, there, there was nobody telling us, uh, like in the situation with Twice Removed, with like a marketing department at Geffen saying, uh, you know what, go change the record a little bit because we can't market it. You know, one chord to another was made on our own in Halifax, uh, partially in our practice space, and then at a studio called Idea of East. And it was almost like going back to Smeared again. It was like making our record on our own. And uh, and we were releasing the record on our own label. We owned the record. MCA was willing to distribute it and do the marketing for us. And uh, they they were already very kind and and very uh, enthused to do the work. So it really felt like we had pulled everything back, but we still had you know um, some success in front of us. So once that had happened with one chord to another, it didn't make any sense to not continue. You know, it was like okay, now we're working on our own terms. Let's move forward, basically. And just talking about the recording process, you know, this is uh, according to Wikipedia. But mm-hmm. twice removed, it says it costs one hundred and twenty thousand dollars to make, and oh, that's probably about right. Yeah, yeah. 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 And one chord, <laughs> including hotels. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because yeah, because we went to yeah, we did it in uh, New York City. We recorded it at two studios. We recorded at uh, Lenny Kravitz's studio in New Jersey, uh, which is basically a museum of Beatles gear and Rolling Stones gear. Wow. And uh, then we moved to a studio called Axis in Manhattan. And we stayed there for, you know, seven or eight weeks. So it's expensive <laughs> making a record like that. Sorry, I didn't mean to decide so I'd be there. Yeah. So that that no, number yeah. is probably pretty accurate. Yeah. No, and then it uh, says that one chord is would cost around ten thousand to make. <laughs> That's probably true. And it's because we're all like yeah. Yeah. Sorry, it just, no, it just seems to be that the production value is about the same. <laughs> it's like you hear like a hundred and twenty thousand dollar record versus a ten thousand dollar record, and you wonder, yeah, was it just hotel rooms and real estate uh costs uh, record recording at a new york city uh, recording studio 
basically, if you see any record that's made for a lot of money, I think most of it is pizza, hotels, uh, you know, taxi cabs, whatever. And then the recording probably costs 5,000 bucks. Um, <laughs> No, it's it's uh, yeah, because we made it in Halifax. We also made we also recorded the drums on our own in a practice space on our four track, and the studio was cheap. There was no there was no uh, it was just basically paying for the studio time, and uh, it was inexpensive in Halifax compared to Manhattan. You know, so uh, it was it was a big difference. I do I do stand by the the sound of Twice Removed. The guy that we worked with, a guy named Jim Rondinelli, who made records with. Uh, uh, one of his most famous records at that time was Girlfriend by Matthew Sweet, which had a very unique, uh, it was a pop record, but it had a very tough kind of sound. And uh, I liked the way that record sounded, the way the guitar sounded and things like that. But I think he did a good job on Twice Removed. I think it has stood the test of time and I think it's a cool sounding record. But I love One Chord to Another as well with the drums that are record- sound like they're recorded with two microphones, which essentially they were in a way, I mean, four microphones, but it sounds like too. It's so trashy sounding, but I think it gives such a uh, uh, a cool base to build on, and and an unusual sound, and especially an unusual sound for a record that was being promoted on radio at that time. Like there was not a lot of records, I think, being recorded, you know, with drums recorded on cassette that were being played on much music, you know. So it was kind of a fun coup of uh, show or, or showing other bands or people that you know you can do it your own way and still. Uh, get a little bit of attention and uh, and some success as well. So it, we felt very fortunate at that time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That was such a great time for yeah. you know, the sound of music in general and like indie sound, like, and especially like, I think you guys were really paving the way and getting people, especially like other like murder record type bands onto much music with like similar sounds. And like, that was a very special time getting to hear like super friends and these like very lo-fi kind of uh, garage bands on much music, you know, next to like, it would be like boys to men. And then it would be, (laughs) it would be super friends next. It's true. We had a lot of good, we had a lot of goodwill at much music. Then there was a lot of people there who liked all those bands who liked hip club groove and they liked super friends and they liked uh, the inbreds or, or, uh, you know, jail as well. And there were even times when, you know, and it was also the time of alternative music was really above ground and, and almost like a marketable thing. So much music had the wedge on every day after school, you know what I mean? A half hour of unusual music. And uh, there were times when they would, hey, it's like Sloan takes over the wedge and we would have super friends play or local rabbits playing, you know, live on national television. Like, when is that going to happen now? Like a band as unusual and and raw and wild as local rabbits or super friends play, you know, in prime time or whatever. It's It was it was a really, it was a really great time, and we we benefited a lot, and we had a lot of goodwill, and it was, you know, we, we really felt uh, like we had a lot of support, a lot of different corners for sure, and and once again that that extended to MCA Universal. They distributed those records by Super Friends and by Local Rabbits and stuff, and and they were all they all went out of their way to, um, you know, Local Rabbits is not something you're going to try and market to Q104 or whatever, but the people who were working on, you know promoting bigger things, you know, took the time to help uh, murder records acts when they might not necessarily had to, you know, because I don't think it was going to move the ball for universal financially or anything like that. But they, uh, all the people that worked there at the time from publicity to marketing were, were very, um, yeah, very supportive of uh, us and the bands that we uh, tried to associate ourselves with from, uh, from the East coast and, 
you know, the bands that we were helping put out records by for sure. And so you're running this label in the East Coast and you've got a lot of East Coast bands. What was the decision to move to Toronto? It was all one by one. Andrew had already lived here because his his girlfriend at the time, uh, now wife, uh, she had she was from Halifax, but she'd moved up here, I think, more for acting opportunities. Um uh, I believe uh, there might've been other reasons, but that's, that's the reason I think. So Andrew wanted to move here to be with her. So Andrew was already moving here in 1992, 93. Uh, and then, you know, it, it made, we were here a lot in Toronto doing a lot of different uh, promotional things, but we didn't move all together at once. I moved next in 1996, 97, because my girlfriend lived here at the time. Uh, so I wanted to move here. And then Chris, the same thing. His girlfriend lived here, so he ended up moving here. And then Patrick and his uh, girlfriend uh, in Halifax in 1998, they both moved here. Mm -hmm. So it was all very one by one. So basically, we moved here for women. That's the main reason. <laughs> Nothing to do with music at all. So gotcha. uh, that's that That was the uh, lure to uh, Toronto. Um, you know, it's... I, 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 I still li like to think that we made it from Halifax, though, because smeared twice removed and one code to another were all made while we lived in Halifax and, and had the success. It's not like we had to move to Toronto to start out playing the Rivoli every you know weekend and then the horseshoe. And then at least, you know what I mean? We had, we had already made it before we moved here. So it was more for, for personal reasons. And it made some things easier as well. You know, it's like, Hey, can you come to universal to do a, go to a meeting or something or, Hey, there's a, a festival playing, you know, it, 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 it saved on flights for sure. You know? Yeah being a little more yeah. central. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now Navy Blues is basically the Toronto record. It is kind of the Toronto. <laughs> yeah, the first record we made uh uh in Toronto and um uh I love the sound of this record as well too. Like uh why can't I'm trying to remember the name of the studio. I'm embarrassed. Um uh but the producer, the owner of the studio, uh Daryl, he engineered the record and he did a wonderful job. We mixed it at a different studio called Reaction. Uh, but um, Daryl Smith uh, made some really great records here in Toronto and I'm really uh, grateful we got to, to make uh, that one here at his studio, which I can't remember the name of. I don't know why I'm totally flaking on it. If you own Navy Blues at home, just look look into the... Uh, let's let's whatever, see. Is it... The, uh, oh, is Chemical... It, is, sorry, Chemical Sound. Oh, there Chemical Sound. Okay. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Anyhow. Uh, uh, I, you know, I was going to ask a few more things before this, but I will ask since you yeah, brought up Daryl okay. Smith, uh, how did that relationship come about? Because Daryl Smith was in uh, the the like early '80s UK oi punk bands Coxbar. Am I not? Am I not mistaken? <laughs> was he really? I'm pretty sure. That's news to me. I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> so he's in like this. Had I known, I would have never worked with that guy. No, <laughs> uh, no I didn't. He's definitely a like he'd been around. He was older than us for sure. And he had been around, uh, you know, uh, in the Toronto scene for a long time. But I did not know his uh, backstory. So thank you for that. Uh, that uh, excellent piece of trivia. Yeah, that was just a quick uh, just, uh, all music uh yeah, like search, <laughs> and all of a sudden I saw. I was like, "What else did uh, Daryl Smith do?" Um, he was he was really tied in with like Change of Heart and made like I think those some of those Change of Heart records. And uh, I don't know why we chose that. And maybe it was on Andrew's recommendation we went there. Uh, it was just a small studio uh, down at like kind of Bathurst and Queen area, um, or like a few blocks down from, but in that in that area in general. 
And uh, it was just a cool studio, uh, but he really had an excellent touch. He lives out in British Columbia now, and I don't know really—I don't know if he records out there anymore. But uh, he, uh, you know, at the time, I don't think I—I um, I, I thought the record was sounding good. But you know, upon looking back on it, I—I uh, I don't think I—I um, uh, don't know what the right word is not respected his talents. I loved working with him, but, but really took in how good he was at capturing guitar sounds and drum sounds and everything like that. It's only now years later, looking back on Navy blues in comparison with other records from the time, or even within our own catalog that I recognize what a, what a talented uh, engineer he was for sure. And there's even bands over the years who, who we've met like, uh, like say death cab for cutie, for example, they, I remember the first time they met, I, I met them. They were like, oh, when we came to Toronto, back to Toronto after Navy Blues came out, we went to Chemical Sound to see the studio where Navy Blues was made. They were, they loved the sound of that record so much that they had been that interested. Or maybe it was Between the Bridges because that was made at Chemical Sound. But anyhow, I, it was either one of those that they they loved the record so much they went to the studio to see, like, to check out, like, where was this record made? And uh, a lot of that is is down to Daryl for sure. Wow, that's really awesome. Yeah. Um. So one chord, okay. In my in my opinion, one chord. And mm. I mean, this is. I think this is true. One chord seems like four people who came together with their own songs and recorded them on an album because that seems like you know you were all living in different parts of the country and all had these songs and you all came together. Navy Blue seems like you all came together to write the album together. Um, so mm-hmm. I just wanted to ask, like, what was the songwriting process on Navy Blues? Because it seems very deliberate in the way the album is built. It's it's funny you say that because to, to me it's no it's it's no different than the process of one chord to another. One chord to another. The the three of us were in Halifax. Andrew was here. Andrew had actually recorded his two songs on one chord to another. Uh, a side, oh, sorry, A side wins. Yeah. And uh, and. Um, and uh, 400 meters were recorded in Toronto with our live engineer, Brendan McGuire, while we made the rest of the album, one chord to another in Halifax. They, you know, I think he, he knew, you know, he, I think, I think it was almost just like luck. He knew the way we were recording with the four track drums. Cause he, he came down to record the drums. So he knew what it was going to sound like. So I think he, you know, his two songs, I don't know if it was like complete coincidence or there was a little bit of deliberate trying to make it sound like what we had been working on. Anyhow, it all kind of gelled. Uh, and Navy blues, I really feel like Navy blues while, you know, Patrick had, you know, Patrick and Chris money city maniacs is like one of our biggest songs of all time, but I really think it benefits from Andrew's involvement across the board. I think he played a lot more on Chris's songs, maybe than he does, maybe than he did in subsequent years. And uh, I really think of Navy Blues as almost like a real Chris and Andrew record in a way, because we were recording finally in Toronto. And, uh, you know, we're all, like you said, in the same city once again. And um, uh, it's funny that you say that it it sounds like it was deliberately put together, but everybody kind of just wrote the songs on their own, kind of the way one chord to another was done. But uh, maybe because it was done in in a relatively compact amount of time, with uh you know the same kind of setup uh for each song you know the same kind of um you know it wasn't like drums were recorded on four track and then some drums recorded in toronto you know it was all done under one sort of uh um you know uh period of time and uh, circumstances so maybe that's why it hangs together a little bit more i'm I'm not I, I don't really have a 
an exact uh, reason why it does, but I'm glad you think that. So <laughs> at least uh, we basically pulled a rabbit out of a hat. It's like, I guess it sounds good, you know? Uh, but no, I, I do think so. I think it hangs together well. I do find my songs maybe sound a little bit different. Like, I want to thank you and mm-hmm. come on, come on. Mm-hmm. Come on, come on sounds like a little, you know, it's like a, pian- a jaunty piano song after this massive riff rock of uh, She Says What She Means, you know, but... Um, mm-hmm. Anyhow, I'm glad you say that it hangs together all right. <laughs> no, I think it's a beautifully built record. And I think, oh, you know, good. like that, just, you know, like how records are built. Like, I mean, obviously you guys, I'm sure you spent a, a good amount of time, like, you know, piecing together, like what songs, you know, preceded the next one. But yeah, mm-hmm. no, I just think like tonally, it's an incredible record and the way it's built, you know, like uh, going from like, she means what she says into come on, come on. Like, you know, like just like kind of like starting it off big like keeping the same uh, sort of tone and then like, you know, it kind of dips a bit and then it comes back up and like, you know, just mm-hmm. like it's, it's just, um, yeah, I, I just, I really love this record day. It's a, it's, it's my favorite Sloan record. So I can't oh, say, wow, enough, that's great. can't say enough great things about it. It's good. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because at, at the time it's funny because everybody really thought like, Oh, Sloan's making their, you know, seventies um, rock record. And you know, I think that actually turned some people off at the time, you know, like one chord to another. It Navy Blues, I think Navy Blues was being set up to be like, oh, this is going to put Sloan over the top. So it was like a steady build from Twice Removed and being the underdog record. Then one chord to another, they come back and, you know, it was gold and did well. And then Navy Blues is going to be the, the record that puts Sloan in arenas or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that didn't really happen. Navy Blues sold less than one chord to another in the end. And, uh, it did well. It did well at at radio, rock radio. But I think maybe it alienated some people who liked one chord to another. I think some people. I remember at the time saying like, "Oh, Money City Maniacs was like a joke on, on like, seventies hard rock or something like that." Mm-hmm. When it wasn't at all. Like Patrick wrote the riff, and Patrick grew up loving ACDC, so there's a little bit of an homage in there, you know. And uh, I think maybe you know while I think we gained some fans with uh, stuff like that. I think also it alienated some people or some people maybe because Sloan was on, you know, uh, uh, rock radio. They're like, Oh, I'm not into Sloan anymore. And then they went off and found another college radio band to follow or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just that, that sort of happens. You know what I mean? People who are into, into like music being their own. And when it gets too big, they sort of lose interest, you know? Um, so that we that might've, uh, affected us a little bit in that trans- transition from one chord to another to navy blues, but I think it was a natural progression to be able to get on a you know bigger radio stations or whatever with uh, with the uh, Money City Maniacs. But um, you know it might have come at a, a slight cost as well too. Um, you know, and I was going to ask you about you know after this record comes out, you know it's a it's a big success it's on much music constantly like i remember yeah, at that yeah. time money city maniacs was on every 5 minutes it was being promoted really well and yep. you know what was what was it like at that time in the band like touring that record and playing those gigs and you know like getting probably as you said like a new following maybe like there may have been a bit of a turnover in fans or been yeah. you know like you've you've kept your fan base you might have gained some new people you may have lost some people but like what was it like in that era of playing that record uh it was pretty exciting and uh you know we were I think, you know, the record came out and and we weren't going to tour in Canada until the fall of 1998 or something like that. And then 
I remember thinking like, oh, what are we going to do in the summer? And, you know, we were being offered Edgefest to tour. And I remember at the time thinking, we, we, we actually were like, nah, I don't think we want to do that. Maybe we thought it was too like whatever. And then in hindsight, it's like, why would we even consider turning that down? Because, you know, it's good. It's a good way to earn a bit of money, but also to expose our band to a, a wider audience. Anyhow, I remember we met with the promoter, Elliot Lefko in Toronto, mm-hmm. and he had convinced us, no, you should do Edgefest. It'll be great. And uh, it was fun. Foo Fighters were on that tour, and uh, it was nice to sort of uh, meet up with them for the first time. And uh, and we were able to bring some other murder records. But that was one thing they sweetened the deal with. So like, hey, why don't, because there's a side stage you could bring murder records bands on. So, you know, the inbreds played, I think sometimes and local rabbits played some shows and I forget who else. Um, but anyhow, so that was exciting doing like a touring festival. And then, uh, and the shows were, I remember in the fall of 1998 touring, uh, Navy blues, we brought Rufus Wainwright to open for us. Wow. And so he was, it was just like him solo piano with Martha, his sister. Wow. And, uh, that was, it was just a fun, sort of something left field that people might not expect. And, you know, it was just after his first record came out, which, which I thought was fantastic. And, uh, you know, he definitely, you know, I think there were a lot of audiences that liked him, but he also got some, you know, you know, when you're playing in red deer or something like that and, or, or, you know, maybe a smaller town that weren't, you know, did not know Rufus Wainwright at all. And he definitely got some cat calls from the audience, but he's, so tough and and quick and funny that he just sort of shot it right back at them. So uh, good for him. Great performer, great singer. And uh, so the tour was very successful and, um, and it was very exciting to do those shows. The other exciting thing about Navy blues though, was it was the first time we got to go and tour Japan. Oh wow! And uh, that was mind blowing to go to, you know, Japan and, you know, play to 900 people in Tokyo and they're just all singing you know, I don't know if they know what they're singing, you know, <laughs> I'm sure there's some people who are, who are very good at English, obviously, but, uh, you know, everybody's singing phonetically the song, you know, she says what she means back at you was elating like that. It's one of the high points is like those first shows in Japan and just being so shocked at the reaction and the number of people that knew who we were, because this was the first time we'd really had a record, uh, promoted, uh, properly in Japan with like, um, with uh, like interviews and uh, you know, promotion at stores and some radio and everything like that. So that was one of the most exciting times for sure. Yeah. Playing, playing in, uh, in Japan. The joke was after we did those uh, Japanese shows in the fall of 1998, we immediately flew back to Canada and flew to Newfoundland, Ah. played a show in St. John's. And we often like playing all ages shows, but they put the all ages crowd on a, on a balcony way, way at the back and the crowd down front was completely drunk and we basically got in a fight with the crowd. They started throwing beer cans at us and we were just like basically beer canned off the stage in St. John's after, you know, playing to 900 insane fans in Tokyo. So anyhow, it was a sobering experience in, in more ways than one. But we've been back to St. John's many times and all is forgiven and we love playing there and I love Newfoundland. But that time was a bit of a low point for us. That's hysterical. Yeah. Yeah, it was too bad. Can I just ask you, just because you brought it up, I just wanted to say, I just wanted to ask, did uh, yeah. did you talk to, I mean, obviously you're on tour with the Foo Fighters for uh, a summer. Did you guys talk about, uh, or um, did you reminisce about your DGC days? Did you, Were you trading DGC stories? Uh, maybe. I don't really remember if we did at all. Uh I don't. I don't think we touched on it that much. I don't. I don't think we talked to Dave Grohl about Nirvana that much. Just in case it was like, 
either a he just gets asked about it so much or b it's just i mean obviously we all know the results like you don't want to bring up hey remember that time with you and Kirk? you know what i mean I, it, mm-hmm. it was probably just an awkward thing to say so we just sort of uh I, we got along with them and we we even you know dave, dave grohl had had uh, for a while he was dating melissa Aftamar from the band hole mm-hmm. and i remember them coming to a, a show or two of ours like on the Between the Bridges tour, and then we ended up touring with them in the 2000s in Canada. Uh, so we had kept up a little bit of a, uh, you know, a, a friendly relationship with them over the years. And and he was, Dave Grohl always had very, you know, kind things to say about our band back then. I don't know if you'd remember who we are anymore, but he was always so uh, very supportive and and kind and a great guy and funny and exceptionally capable capable on so many instruments. Um, but uh, I don't know if we really would have talked about uh, uh, Geffen stuff uh i don't think we did good question but yeah no i don't think we really remarked on it that much you know okay well back to sloan we've everybody yeah, knows, no, everybody no, everybody's right. uh talked about foo fighters enough but i just, yeah, I just no, had to right. ask <laughs> oh yeah no, no not, of course yeah, yeah yeah for sure um i'm i might have remarked actually because i did see nirvana i saw nirvana play on the nevermind tour at the opera house here in toronto oh you in were 91. at that show wow I was at that show and it was, yeah, it was fantastic. It was just at the point, it was in the same week that Nevermind came out. Mm-hmm. So they hadn't really, they were still just like, oh my God, this is taking off. And Kurt actually seemed excited, you know what I mean? And and they put on a good show. It wasn't at the point where they're like, oh, we were tired of talking to people. We're tired of media. We're, you know, they were sort of over, they weren't, you know, they hadn't jumped the shark yet, you know? And uh, so it was, it was a great point to catch them. So I might've mentioned to Dave Grohl, like, Oh, I saw you play at that. Like I might've mentioned that, but that might've been the only thing that I would have touched upon and just say how great he was, you know, but anyhow, sorry. I didn't mean to jump in there. No, no. I'm I'm really glad you said that Jay. (laughs) Have you seen that footage on YouTube? That whole show is on YouTube. Uh, yeah, I've watched a little bit of it again of when it when it showed up again, and I was like, "Oh wow!" I totally remember it too. It was just like, uh, yeah, it, it was it was exciting to see them. Like it was the Melvins opened, and I hadn't seen the Melvins before, and that really was it. They played for a long time, and it was very slow and dirgy. And I was like, "Wow, I don't, I don't know if I can handle much more of this." Uh, but uh, they, I have gone on to see the Melvins again, but. Um, but yeah, it was it was a very it was such an exciting show, an exciting time to uh, see them. I feel very fortunate that I got to see them play, not knowing that like you know they wouldn't, you know they would have only lasted another you know three years basically. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I mean, just quickly, I mean, you've been together for thirty years with all original members, which is yeah. incredible. That's that's very rare for a band, um, not only to last that long, but to have all original members. How does it work for so long? uh you know i mean this the same I, I feel like when i get asked that i always give the same answer it's just like share everything four ways then nobody's the you know it's not like somebody's driving you know a porsche and someone else is just like taking the bus you know uh you know when someone has a song that they write that does well at radio you know if you take the example of something like the police you know sting is way more wealthy than Stuart Copeland, you know, uh, and that can breed dissent within a band, uh, you know, especially a band of four songwriters. It's like, well, whose song's going to be the single? Uh, you know, there might not, maybe it would lean more towards Patrick because his sort of more rocking songs lend themselves to commercial radio, maybe a little bit more than say mine or, or Andrew's perhaps. Uh, but we've all had songs that have done well at radio. We've all had songs that have either been a theme for a television show or been in a commercial. So I like to think, 
you know, Patrick Sheriff has Patrick Sheriff songs have definitely done a lot of, uh, you know, paid a lot of bills for us. But I, I still uh, like to think that everybody has had songs that have done well at radio or on TV or in films. And, uh, and I think, you know, by sharing the credit and sharing the wealth or, or the lack of wealth, I think keeps you in the same boat. And, uh, you know, you're all just sort of working, fighting for the same cause. And I think that will keep your band together. I mean, it's kept like you two together for over 40 years, you know what I mean? And, uh, and that was like a model that REM had as well. They split everything four ways and you know it just seemed to be a uh, a model for longevity and uh, i think that's you know what i think that's one of the things that's that's helped us and also with everybody being songwriters everybody you know sloan as a platform it's it's an outlet for everybody you know it's not like it's not like oh i got to go i really you know i've written these 20 songs and you know i can't get them on a sloan album i'm going to go make my own record you know i'm not like the disgruntled you know, drummer and Radiohead who has to go and make his own solo record, which he did, you know? Uh, so it's a platform for everybody and it's an outlet, an artistic outlet for everybody. So I think, uh, I think that, uh, hopefully, you know, keeps people interested in, in Sloan as a, uh, as a going concern, you know, for sure. And, yeah. you know, to touch on what you just said, has there ever been talk about solo records? Has anybody ever said they wanted to do it or has it always been the consensus of like, we'll keep all our music together? I don't think there's ever been a consensus. Like years and years ago, we used to talk about, we used to use Eric's Trip, the band, as an example of uh, Eric's Trip. You know, they they made great records, but uh, each of them, especially Rick White, uh, were so prolific that he, you know, he did, uh, you know, even while Eric's Trip was going, he had... Um, you know, elevator to hell. He had, he had that, uh, Julie was doing her own records as broken girl. And then, uh, Chris was doing records as moon socket. So they each were doing these other things. And I remember at, by the time the last Eric's trip record came out, even, even the second record, I remember thinking like, wow, the elevator to hell record. I like that more than the last Eric trip record. And it just made me think, Oh, it's too bad that, you know, Rick didn't incorporate maybe some of those elevator recordings into Eric's trip just to make Eric's trip even better. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't know if it really would have worked that way. I'm just sort of imagining that. So I think it's nice to be able to keep your main band just so you don't dilute your main band. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, So we always kind of maybe, you know, I don't know if we all talked about it together, but I know Chris and I used to think that, but then, you know, as time has gone on, Chris, I think wanted to do something different and, and uh, work with his, uh, one of his you know best friends, Matt Murphy and uh, Mike O'Neill in the band tons. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's not really solo, but it's a different band. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we've sort of, that sort of broke the rule a little bit. And then Patrick has his own uh, side thing called uh, fuzzed out, which he's released a song or two. I'm not sure uh, how many are out there. I know there's one for sure. So that's almost like a separate little solo thing for Patrick. So we've kind of like torn up that rule book. And uh, so there are sort of solo things. And Andrew has done, even did some music, I think for a film a long time ago. So there's, mm. there's little things we, 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 I like to think that we save our best stuff for Sloan, but uh, you know, I think after a while it's, it's, I don't think it's not unhealthy to have, uh, you know, another, uh, path for some creativity and and hopefully you still uh 
you know, don't just put your junk in the Sloan pile. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. not just giving your, you're not giving your B sides to Sloan or whatever. Uh, <laughs> hopefully you're still, you know, bringing some a material. And, and I like to think that, that, uh, that we still are for sure. You know? Yeah. 100% you are. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just want to say, since you brought up Eric Strip and Elevator to Hell, uh, yeah. Jay, my second concert ever was Sloan and Elevator to Hell when I was sixteen. Oh wow! Where yeah. was no? Where was that show? In Kingston, Ontario. Oh wow! Great. Yeah, it was fantastic. That's... We it was now where? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it was at Queens, and it was yeah. at their like giant convocation hall. And we showed up as teenagers and realized that you had to be a queen student to get in. So we okay. had to beg some queen students to sign us in and say, please, we, we won't cause trouble. <laughs> like we don't want to, we just want to see the band. So they let That's us awesome. in. And so, oh, yeah, good. Dis- I mean, I was a big, uh, Eric strip fan. I'd never, I didn't even know, uh, elevator to hell existed at that point. And all of a sudden I showed up and they were on stage and I was like, wow, like discovering this new band. And then you guys played. And I just, I remember, people of the sky playing and Andrew was up on stage, like this like red light, just like illuminating him. And then as soon yeah. as the song kicked in, there was these big lights that just swung out and just like blinded the crowd. And I just went, yes, <laughs> it was so good. Just this awesome production value. Oh, that's good. I'm glad we were, uh, I'm glad the lights were working that night to provide <laughs> such a, an excellent moment. Oh, that's good. That's cool. Now. So, so what tour would that have been? What year would that have been? That would have been one chord. Uh, yeah. It was on one chord. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It would have been Great. that. It would have been, yeah, it would have been 96. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Uh, I bought a Sloan shirt. I had it until I was in my 20s and it, then it just fell apart. It was done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, know. I, have, I have many shirts like that that are not Sloan that have sort of, uh, yeah, worn their, worn out their welcome or whatever. But oh, that's cool. Well, thanks for uh, coming along uh, way back then. That's, I can't remember that one specifically, but I'm, I mean, it's hard to remember, but uh, that year was, those shows were super fun to play. So that's great. That's awesome. I've got two more questions for you. Sure. Yeah. What was the, recently you cleaned out your storage space. What yes. was, what was the best thing Sloan found at their storage space? Oh gosh. Uh, I'm trying to think, you mean aside from the box of orange Sloan beach balls, <laughs> promotional <laughs> beach balls, that was a good treat actually. <laughs> We gave the now now Jackson. You came to the uh, the garage sale. Is that right? I what did, did you yes. find? What did, what did you find that? Uh, well, I was about. I uh, recognize you from coming up to the table, but yeah. I forget what what you purchased. I was right behind my friend Cal, who owns uh, Short Stack Records. So. Oh, you're friends with Cal. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so that was, was nice to see Cal come down and uh, show some support. It was great. Yeah. So I, uh, my friend Alex, who was in front of me, he got. Um, he got a Japanese pressing that I think you signed his name on, like Alex of 500 or something like that. Okay, yes. He he must have got one of the bootlegs. Alex, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then uh, he also got a Good in Everyone 7-inch. Yeah, which, which okay. then yep. my friend Matt, who was with me in line, we we missed those, but he when we got up there, he said... I think to you that he he got that as promotion, like when you guys had that in the nineties. So oh, no wherever okay. it was, he he had it still as a promotion. Oh, um, cool. Okay. I managed to get I bought one cord which I'd never owned on vinyl. Okay, uh, great. Cause I always like to buy at like a show or something like that if I can. And I actually went to the Navy Blues show 
And by the time I got out and that merch line was like 50 people long, I was like, I can't do it. Yeah, no, I, yeah it, was a little, it was a little bananas that night. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I did, I did pick up the Super Friends uh, 10 inch. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. We found that like that was another funny, that was an unusual find. Uh, yeah, like we, we have, yeah, we found like a couple hundred of those Super Friends 10 inches. It was just, it was like, oh, actually, I think we knew we had those, but I didn't know we had so many. Uh, it was fun. We actually found a box of Four Nights of the Palais Royale on vinyl. Wow. But a box, because it's big, a box was five. So we okay. found five copies that we didn't know were in our deep storage space. Um, so we sold those as well. And people were happy to find those. Um, but the whole, the garage sale was an idea of Chris's. And we knew that, oh, th that was the other thing. So we found those twice removed uh, box set leftovers. You know, we found the contents for 30 copies of the, but no box, no outer box. So that's why we ended up making the twice removed tote bag sort of as a way like, okay, well, here's a way to package. You know, it's either that or you just have all these, ins the, the, the inside records and the booklet. Uh, we didn't want to sell them piecemeal one by one because we wanted to make it, you know, you know, people bought the box set for a reason. We didn't want to sell it, you know, piece by piece so that, you know, then people would be like, oh, well, I bought the box set. Like I, I could have just bought the outtakes album. That's all I really wanted or the booklet. That's all I really wanted. So we wanted to package up everything together and put it in a, in a uh, tote bag. So that was kind of fun finding those. Uh, and then we manufactured the tote bag, especially for the garage sale. So yes, when we found that, that was almost, we were going to just sell them online. And then Chris sort of thought of the idea, oh, let's have a garage sale. And, you know, we had to clean out our, our practice space because the building that we were in was being torn down and it was sold to a mega church. Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> Thank you, so Exactly. Yeah. So uh, we don't have a practice space anymore. Um, so um, we just kind of thought oh, this would be a fun way to get rid of. We just have so many posters, you know, like we kept stuff for ourselves. But even after keeping stuff for an archive, there was still mountains of stuff. So. We just thought this would be a fun way uh, to just see fans. It was the summer, you know what I mean? Uh, it was just kind of a fun event. And it did so well that we're definitely going to do, I, I believe we're going to do one next summer as well nice. and try and press, press up something, especially for it. I don't know what that will be yet. Uh, but So we may have some of the same things that were there this past summer. Um, and uh, But hopefully we'll have a couple of new things um, for it. And maybe we'll make likely one thing like press up something specially for it and introduce it there and if there's more left over then we'll sell them online but it'll give people in toronto a chance to go and buy it without having to pay shipping or you know buy it a little bit more expensively at a store or something like that and uh you know maybe make up a new murder records t-shirt or make yeah. up something new like that you know so it, it did so well like it, we were we were uh kind of blown away by the amount of people that came out and you know, and the enthusiasm and, and, and the fact that we sold so much stuff at, at, uh, you know, in three hours, it was great. I, I did not expect that when I showed up maybe like 10 minutes into that sale, I would be like how far down that line already. <laughs> yeah. And then right. yeah. Yeah, when yeah. I left, that line was all the way down the alley and it yeah. was actually number one, it was such a cool experience for my friends and I, like, you know, I kind of got together with some people that I hadn't seen in a while. We all met in oh, line. Cool. We, you know, we picked up some stuff and then we all went to Henderson's Brewery after and just like talked about music for three hours. It was such a great, oh, great day. And walking down that line, I was just looking going, this is the 
portrait of the last 20 years of that guy in that band and that guy used to put on shows <laughs> and this guy, like, you know, every face going yeah. down the line of the indie scene. It was so great. Oh, definitely. Yeah. No, I saw like a local promoter, like uh, Mark Pesci was there in yeah, line. Yeah. And uh, you see, uh, there are definitely some people who I have not seen at a Sloan show in a long time. It's like, but I, I remember you from 20 years ago, you know? Uh, so it was, it, it was definitely a total flashback. Uh, <laughs> but also there was some younger people there too, who were like, I just got into Sloan last year and can I get a copy of Toys for Movie? You know, so it, that's encouraging when you see, you know, some younger people there as well. So it was great, you know? And I know there's some familiar faces who went by, like Damien Abraham uh, was there and he was like, I got my kids. I can't stay, but I just want to come just say <laughs> hi, you know? Uh, so that was cool as well, for sure. That's Yeah, it was awesome. great. It, it, it was really a success and, and, uh, and fun too. Like it was, it was actually fun and just fun to chat with people uh, and also be able to answer questions. Some people are like, do you have any of this, like, like this bootleg left or do you have uh tell me about this like the flashing lights record when did that you know what i mean there's just people who had actual questions and it was it was fun to just make that connection with people who were uh genuinely interested you know it was a really it was a bit of a get together from get together for some uber fans and it was good to see them for sure you know yeah i think it was such a a special experience yeah you guys should definitely continue doing that because it was yeah it was really important. It's and it's really great to see something like that like happen in your hometown where all of a sudden you like it's almost and it's almost like a secret too. It was like it wasn't, but it was, you know, like you get to like go yeah. into this alley, go to a garage sale of one of your favorite <laughs> bands and like grab a bunch of special stuff. That was a really excellent experience. Right. I'm glad people were not frightened by the alley. Like, you know, they're like, <laughs> Yeah, like good fellas, like, yeah, just go down there, turn the corner, it'll be fine. Uh but yeah, no, well, thanks for saying it. Thanks for coming. It was it was it was great. Yeah. We're, we're excited to do another one for sure. Well, I've got one last question about that garage sale, Jay. Yeah. One was that when I walked up, one of the women who was kind of curating line, maybe a little bit, was wearing a Kearney Lake Road t-shirt. Yes, and that's I was right. Like That t-shirt looked in excellent condition. And then, I'm just going to say for all the listeners who maybe need a reference, uh, Kearney Lake Road was a band that Jay had with Chris as well before song. yes that's right. that's right yes and in your garage i saw the kearney lake road sign <laughs> from that is yes your <laughs> good eye exactly uh so let me set this up so that was my that was my girlfriend ali who was wearing the kearney lake road shirt because when she saw it uh you know uh a couple of years ago she was like oh my gosh this is this, is, this illustration is great and you know and i i you know obviously had already she knew about Carney Lake Road. Uh, I didn't know her when she was in Car when I was in Carney Lake Road, obviously. But uh, uh, anyhow, she was so excited by the design that I was like, "Oh well, you can have it because I have a few of them at home." Um, so she just thought it was a good homage to wear that at the uh, at the uh, at the sale. But yes, the original Carney Lake Road sign that we named the band after. Chris still has the actual street sign, and we used to even bring that on the stage for Carney Lake Road shows and like just lean it up against the the kick drum. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so Chris still has it. So I'm glad it's still in our, uh, in our wheelhouse of uh, memorabilia that, you know, needs a museum one day or whatever. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, good eye. Yeah. That's the original Carney Lake road sign in there as well. So uh, we still have it. We still have so much stuff. It's embarrassing. <laughs> Patrick and Andrew have nothing. And Chris has an attic full of 
you know, memorabilia, Sloan and Carney Lake Road related. And I have a basement full of it. So it's basically an ongoing competition, like who can get the most stuff. So uh, I'm glad we've, but to be honest, I'm glad we've kept all that stuff, including like the Carney Lake Road sign, because it's, it's really fueled like the box sets that we've made over the years, all those photos and uh, posters and memorabilia. And it, I think has really helped uh, make those books and the box sets um, uh, even, you know, it's 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 helped make them as good as they could be, along with the photos of Catherine Stockhausen, who we're very grateful for, you know, having uh, documented us so well over the years and everything. So, uh, but yeah, we're kind of pack rats, but also, you know, it's fun to collect yourself, basically. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? I'm into records, like I collect records, and and I love old rock magazines and things like that, and and rock ephemera and posters and stuff. So, you know being in Sloan is fun making, you know, it's fun writing songs and making music, but the other half of, of it, the other half uh, that's super fun is collecting yourself basically. <laughs> <laughs> and as a person who does, who could not get rid of his old music magazines, Jay, you actually have you uh, uh, an Instagram account that you started with your old rock oh, magazines. Yeah. And you've got some it's old tr- ones, man. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Sorry. I forgot that I shared that with you. Yes. Yeah, so that was, uh, it was, it, I have so many, uh, some from when I was young, but also I would have, I, I love rock ephemera and I love old rock journalism and things like that. So whenever I find, uh, you know, old Rolling Stone magazines from like 1969, 1970, I love them. I love the look of them. I love the design of the ads in them and everything like that. And old like 70s cream magazines and uh, even old fanzines from the 70s that are so, you know, rough looking, but they're so wonderful and just the the way they're made. So uh, even just like during the pandemic, I was just organizing so much of the stuff that I have that I just started photographing the covers just cause they look so beautiful. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to start an Instagram account and just post them all. I've slowed down a little bit, but I got to pick it up again. Cause I still have embarrassingly so much more that I could <laughs> uh, contribute to it. So, uh, uh, yeah, no, I love that kind of stuff. So, uh, it, it just made for a nice grid of photos on, uh, on Instagram. So that's why I thought I would, would do it. So check it out if you're bored. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> If you have hours to kill, check it out. For sure. Uh, Jay, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. This was a big thrill for me to get all these questions answered by you. <laughs> There's so many things oh, I've right thought on. about uh, about Sloan, uh, you know, for the for so long. Like, you know, you, you guys were one of the first bands I got into when I was younger. I remember, like, you know, like when really getting into music and, you know, Coax Me was just like getting played on those like HMV commercials, uh, like, and also, you know, like the, the video, like it was just like, it was such a great time for me to get into music. And you guys were one of the original people that I got into. So this was a, a big uh, thrill for me and it was a real honor to have you on. Oh, well, thanks Jackson. Oh, well, thanks for having me on. And, and also uh, sorry if some of my answers were a little long winded and winding, but I hope, uh, I hope you can, uh, make some use of it for, for your podcast. So, uh, uh, I'll be, uh, I'll be tuning into future episodes and and thanks for having me on. It was it was a really fun conversation. Yeah, I couldn't have asked for anything better, Jay. I love long answers. <laughs> so thanks very much. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You're welcome. Thanks. Take care. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you so much, Jay, for giving me that interview. It was really, really a privilege to talk to you. Thanks to Noyan and Alex for coming on and chatting with me about their love for Sloan. I'm not going to do the Billboard chart this episode because I'm not going to follow up the interview with the fact that Metallica Load was number one in the charts on July 1996. It doesn't give a great context for what 1996 music was at all, and I don't want to follow it up with that. So goodbye to everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. I just want to keep on thinking about you.
Patrick Patrick has Axel Rose stories because Axel Guns N' Roses played twice in Halifax before Sweet Child of Mine had taken off. They they came through opening for the cult one wow. time. Yeah. And then opening for Iron Maiden. And Patrick at the time worked at a magazine store. And Axel Rose basically just came in and was standing at like the like the adult magazine, like the porno magazine rack, just sitting there, just like reading them, just like standing there for an hour. And they were like trying to kick him out. It was like dude, you can't just stand here reading like whatever, like Hustler magazine or something. And he was just like, I don't care. He's like standing there. reading. Anyhow, that was Patrick's one uh, <laughs> uh, encounter with early Axl Rose. I'd be like 1987 Axl Rose. Kind of. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah it's pretty good encounter. That was pretty fun. <laughs> but, uh, 